Good morning, everyone. Hope you are doing well. We are continuing in our series through the book of Galatians this morning. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians 3, verse 11, and we'll pick up there in a moment. In this great letter that Paul is writing to the early church, he is wrestling with the question of the role of the law in the life of a Christian. Uh, Does the law of God have any role to play in our salvation? Uh, What about after salvation? As we're walking with Jesus, what role should the law uh, play? And in this particular section of the letter, Paul is contrasting uh, the works of the law and the works of the flesh with that of faith and the Spirit. And he's saying, hey, you can do uh, all sorts of works under the law, but it won't make you righteous in God's sight. And then he's going to continue with this similar line of thought. We're picking up in Galatians 3, verse 11. Here's what it says. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Let's pray. Jesus, we uh, come to you in uh, just a time of tension, in a time of uh, turmoil, uh, with everything that's happening in our nation, with everything that's happening in our own lives. Uh, But we come, Lord, to um, just come together as a community, even online this morning, and to uh, sit under Uh, your teaching, to sit at the feet of our rabbi, to hear from uh, the scriptures, from the mouth of God, uh, things that are true and how uh, we might go about operating and flourishing in the world. And so would you uh, speak to us this morning, Lord, each one in our own homes, uh, and would you show us what it looks like not to live under legalism or the law, but to walk in your grace and to experience uh, this thing that you've called life that is truly life. Uh, We want that, Lord, Uh, and would you come this morning and show us the way? Would you be the way for us? In Jesus' name, amen. Our temptation as human beings is to relate to God through the law and religious works. Uh, how should I gauge my standing with God? Uh, how should I take my own spiritual temperature, so to speak, to see how I'm doing? Well, we're very quick to assume that it should be based on how well I'm doing at following God's laws 
or God's rules. Uh, Thousands of years before Christ, the Israelites were freed from slavery in Egypt, and they're led out through the Red Sea into the desert to Mount Sinai, where God forms a covenant with them. And he says, hey, as part of this covenant, I'm committing to you, you're committing to me, and there's going to be a law which you are to operate by as a people, as a nation, as part of the covenant that we are forming today. And these rules and laws are going to govern us uh, all sorts of things, every aspect of our life together. And if you um, look back at this covenant and look back at the law of Moses, you'll see that these laws are actually reflective of the heart of God. Uh, Many of them are um, very beautiful or very wise, um, righteous laws. In fact, uh, many of the laws that we use to govern ourselves today in our country can be traced back and find their roots in the law of Moses because there's just wisdom there and there are righteous laws and decrees. Uh, Elsewhere, Paul says the law is spiritual. Uh, The law is good. You can study the law uh, and not find fault in the law. But... Paul points out some brilliant and insightful things about the law as it relates to the human condition. And I apologize in advance because a lot of what Paul has to say on this topic is dense and sort of difficult to understand. It can be confusing. Uh, But stick with me for just a few minutes and hopefully a few minutes from now uh, we'll arrive with some sense of clarity. Uh, First, Paul makes it clear that the law is good and that it's spiritual, but the passage we just read says that those who are under the law are under a curse and that Christ came to redeem us from the curse of the law. So in a a confusing turn of events, something that is righteous and good uh, actually comes to us as a curse. Uh, Paul says that it uh, provokes us to sin and actually brings about death in us. Paul says it this way in Romans 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. It's not sinful. He's saying it's good. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Okay, that all sounds good. But here's the catch, and this is the weird part. But, Paul says, sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is what? Holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. 
Interesting. Now, did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Wow. Okay. Deep breath. Um, passages like this uh, tend to give me a headache. Uh, what are you trying to say here, Paul? He starts off saying, hey, hey the law, it's, it's holy and it's righteous and it's good. But when this thing that is holy and righteous and good comes to us, it actually provokes sin and brings about death in us. To the point that Paul says, if you're under the law, you're experiencing this, you're actually under a curse. Which is pretty strong language. And, and it leaves us wondering, how could that possibly be true? Well, part of what Paul is getting at is that the human condition apart from Christ is actually far worse than we think it is. In the modern age, we are convinced that human beings are essentially good. Uh, we're mostly good. We just need a couple things in order to sort of live out our goodness. All we need is the right education and a livable wage and um, sort of the right programs and, and laws and rules in place to guide us as a society. And we'll be all right. All we need is a little bit of help uh, living out our goodness. Uh, this is the unspoken assumption in modern secular culture, and it shows up in our thinking, in our culture, in our movies, in our media. There's this underlying assumption that human beings are basically good. We just need a little help. And no doubt many of us as followers of Jesus sort of adopted that mentality. But the law actually proves our theory to be inaccurate. The law actually shows us that the human condition is far more desperate than we thought it was. When you introduce the law, which is holy and righteous and good, you, you don't get human beings who are holy, righteous, and good which is odd. You introduce something that's good, but what you get in result is rebellion and sin and death. Which means that there's something uh, rather sinister hiding in, underneath the surface in the human heart. Uh, you can think of it like a math equation, if that's helpful. And some of you will remember back to high school math. And, and for some of you, this will make you shudder because you hated high school math. And maybe it's the last time you ever took a math class. But you might remember in high school math, solving for the value of X. You have X representing an unknown value. You don't know what it is. You don't know what's hidden away in that number. Uh, but in this analogy, essentially human beings are the X. We're the unknown in the equation. Uh, are human beings good? Are human beings bad? Are they a, a mixed bag? What's the status of the human heart? Well, we're not totally sure. But one way to discover the value of X is to add something to X or to subtract something from X. And, and you can kind of work backwards from the result. So in math class, you might have seen an equation like this. 
x plus 3 equals 10. Well, if that's the value that we're working with, then you can actually work backwards from the result to find the value of x. If adding 3 to x gets you up to 10, well, then x must be 7. And there's a sense in which we can do the same thing with the law. X is the human heart. Uh, we aren't quite sure what its condition is. And then we add to X something that is holy, righteous, and good. And so you look at an equation like that and you have X plus something holy, righteous, and good equals what? Well, we'd assume that adding something holy, righteous, and good to human beings, who we assume are holy, righteous, and good, would then get us something beautiful. Uh, they should combine for an outcome that is super holy, righteous, and good. Mega righteousness, if we can conceive of that. But, Paul's saying, that's not what happens at all. Instead, you've got X plus something that is holy, righteous, and good, and the result that you get is rebellion, sin, and death. And you think, well, wait a second, how does that add up? Um, how can you add something holy, righteous, and good and end up with a terrible result? Well, if we're working backwards, the explanation is that there's something hidden away in X, in that unknown, in the human heart, that's much more broken than we thought. That actually brings a negative value to the equation. And we can see this in the pages of Scripture and in our own experience. Every time a righteous law is added, somehow you end up with a negative result, with, with a broken outcome. And experience shows the same thing. Uh, if you think about the Garden of Eden, you have Adam and Eve, who um, there's no sin, there's no death, there's none of that. You have Adam and Eve who are enjoying one another and who are enjoying God's uninterrupted presence and blessing. They have um, this beautiful home. They have access to everything in the garden except one thing. There's one rule in the garden. You can eat from every tree in the garden, which by some accounts the garden might have been the size of a small country, you have access to all of it. You can eat from any tree, but there's just one tree in the entire garden that you cannot eat from. You've got all of God to enjoy. You've got all of one another to enjoy. You've got all of this beautiful garden to enjoy except one tree. And yet, what happens in that story? What is their eye drawn to? What does their focus become? Their focus is drawn toward that one tree. In a garden full of yeses, they have one no. But there's something in the human spirit that reacts against that, that reacts against the law. And they think, well, why not? Why can't I eat from that tree? Is God holding out on us? What is it about that one tree that makes it so bad? How come I can't eat from that one? 
and, and then they move in and they are they look closer and they investigate their curiosity is peaked and 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 Paul says in the same way when the law comes it actually provokes us towards sin that one law came what what did it do it provoked Adam and Eve towards sin and Paul says the same thing was true of me I was living my life everything seemed to be going well perhaps you know a lustful thought would wander into my mind and just sort of drift back out again every once in a while but I didn't really think twice about it I was I was just living I was alive apart from the law it wasn't a big deal but then this law comes which is holy, righteous, and good. And it says, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not covet. But what happens is that this righteous law comes in, and as it does, it provokes sin. All of a sudden, Paul's saying, well, why shouldn't I do that? Who's to say I I can't do that? Well, now I'm actually quite fascinated with this idea of lust or coveting or adultery or whatever it is. Suddenly my mind is thinking in that direction. My curiosity is piqued. I'm feeling out the contours of it in my mind. Why shouldn't I do that? Perhaps there's life in that thing that God doesn't want me to taste. Paul says that sin is so uh, ingrained in us, it's so wrapped up in the human heart, it's so deceitful that it seizes the opportunity given by the commandment and it springs to life. It was always there, sort of lurking in the background beneath the surface, but now that the commandment comes, it's stirred up, it comes rushing up to the surface. And that was true of Adam and Eve, and that was true of Paul. And what Paul's saying is, that's true of humanity. That's just how we operate. Um, and, and I can see that in my own experience. When I think back to our upbringing, uh, my brother and sister and I, uh, we had a wonderful upbringing. We had a two-parent home. It was very loving, uh, very structured, very generous. Uh, we had uh, everything that we could have imagined. It was a very um, privileged upbringing in many ways. But I can see in my own childhood the ways in which we were born sort of bent toward rebellion. And there's this great story that my mom tells uh, about my sister, uh, my younger sister, who um, when she was two or three years old, she was just learning how to talk. And she turned to my mom one day and she said, Mommy, whenever you say yes, I'm just going to say no. And whenever you say no, I'm just going to say yes. Just out of the blue, unprovoked she says this and and it's there in the human heart and you think here's this loving parent who's looking out for her best interest who wants to guide her into the these ways of life and yet there's this reaction against within the human heart we just want to rebel And Paul's saying, because sin and rebellion are so ingrained in the human heart, applying the law doesn't actually change anything. In fact, it it provokes sin. It provokes rebellion. If you say yes, 
I'm just going to say no. And if you say no, I'm just going to say yes. If you tell me not to eat of that tree, well, guess what? That's now the one thing that I want to do. I'm now fascinated by that tree. If you say don't covet, well, suddenly something in me reacts against, well, isn't it my right to covet? And and our curiosity goes that way. We're stirred toward it. Uh, the law comes, and when it comes, it actually reveals human nature for what it really is. So, Paul says, if you operate under the law, you're going to live in this terrible place. It's actually going to provoke sin within you and bring about death within you. And to make matters worse, Paul says, if you're operating under the law, it actually doesn't make you righteous. You're warring against the law. Sin is being provoked within you. You're, you're operating under this curse and you're condemned by the law. The second that you break one commandment, one law, He's saying, it's all over. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Just one mistake and that's it. It's over. It's, it's done. Um, you're condemned. You're cursed. And you're going to live under this constant sense of guilt, under this constant sense of condemnation, under this ongoing curse that it is to live under the law. And as you're living under that curse, guess what? Sin and death are being provoked within you. And you take a step back and you look at that situation and you say, oh my gosh, like we are in bad shape. Humanity is in worse shape than we would like to believe. And to make matters worse, as you labor under the curse of the law, you don't actually become righteous in God's sight. It, it doesn't get you anywhere. You aren't justified. That can't come through the law, he says. Paul tells us that it only comes through faith. That faith is, is the channel or the avenue through which righteousness can flow. It's the only way that righteousness can come to us. And that faith specifically is putting our faith in Jesus and what he has done under the law. And so Paul says, hey, you have a choice. On the one hand, you can labor under the law. You can labor under uh, the curse, under condemnation, which is difficult labor, but it doesn't require faith. He says there's a way of living that's actually just living by the flesh. It's living by works of the law. The person who, who lives under the law will live by the law. And so you can do that. It's fairly straightforward. It doesn't require faith. You just have things to do. But tempting as that road is, Paul says, it's actually a cursed road. It's a difficult road and it's a dead end. There's no righteousness to be found at the end of that road. But Paul says, there's another way to live. There's another path and it's the way of faith. And he says, this way of faith, it's the only way that we can receive righteousness. Works of the law won't cut it. It's only through the avenue of faith and specifically 
through faith in Jesus. As we place our faith in him, we actually receive his righteousness because Christ took your place for your sin. And so as you place your faith in him, your sin uh, is credited to his account and his righteousness is credited to yours. In the verses we read this morning, Paul said that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He says he bought us out from under that master by substituting himself, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. And this original uh, quote that Paul is using is actually from Deuteronomy 21:23, in which the law of Moses described that someone convicted of a capital offense should be executed and then hung on a pole in public for the world to see. And whoever experienced that was cursed. Um, and then that body was actually to be um, taken down or removed before nightfall. And then Jesus comes along and guess what? He's executed and he's hung on a pole. He, he takes the full curse that, that humanity deserved and he hung on a pole in public for all to see. He was executed there and then his body was removed before nightfall. But he was um, punished as a capital offender with the full curse that goes along with that. He was said to be cursed because of the way that he died. And, and in that, we're told that he redeemed us, that he bought us back, that he purchased us with his blood in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith, we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Jesus stood in our place for our sin. He took our sin. He took the sin of the world into himself. The scriptures say by some mystery, he, he became sin. He became a curse so that we might be free. He took the full curse of the law. He took the full punishment as if he'd broken every law and he took that into himself. And as he's taking that into himself, as he's becoming sin, as he's becoming this curse and he's about to breathe his last, he says, it is finished. It's done. It's fulfilled. It is accomplished. I fulfilled the law completely, Jesus is saying, by following every commandment. There's two ways in which Jesus fulfills the law. One is that he fulfills every commandment. He lives out the law perfectly. We see what a perfectly law-abiding human would look like in uh, the radical loving nature of Jesus. He never broke a single command he fulfilled it completely. But the second way in which he fulfilled the law is that he took the full curse of the law. Our sin was credited to his account as if he'd broken every law. He suffered that punishment and now his righteousness is credited to us. 
It's not based on the law. Uh, it's based on Christ. And the Old Testament uh, actually prepared us for this reality through uh, the sacrificial system. If you go back and read the Old Testament, uh, when you'd go to the temple in that world to be forgiven of sin and to be reconciled to God, you would bring a lamb. And this lamb, uh, the law says, was to be a spotless. It was to be without defect, without blemish. So when you would go to the temple uh, to be cleansed and forgiven of sin, you would bring this lamb. But as you came into the temple, as you came into the presence of the priest there at the temple, all eyes were on the lamb. No one was looking at you or how you were dressed, or what you looked like, or if you had you know, stains on your clothes, or if you were disheveled, or anything like that. The priest wasn't there to examine you. He was there to examine the lamb. And he would look it over, kind of top to bottom, and make sure there was no defects or blemishes. And then the, the, the priest might turn to you and say, I find no fault in your lamb. It's, it's accepted. And because it's accepted, you are accepted. And, and there's a very real sense in which that was preparing us for Jesus, who we're told is uh, our Passover lamb. And, and there's the same sense in, in which there's that question being asked, does, does the lamb have any defects? And we see in Scripture that as Jesus stands and is examined before Pontius Pilate, but on his way to being crucified, Pontius Pilate says, I find no fault in him. Uh, he is our, our perfect, spotless Passover lamb, which is why Paul says, I don't even examine myself. He says, I don't care what the law has to say. It has nothing to say to me. I don't care what other people think of me or how they judge me. I don't even judge myself. I'm not even caught up constantly taking my own spiritual temperature because all eyes are on the Lamb who stood in our place for our sin, who, who became the curse of the law so that we might be freed up to receive the spirit and bear fruit for God. Because we have this perfect lamb who became the curse for us, who stood in our place for our sin, we are now set free from our bondage under the law to bear fruit for God. Romans 8 says it this way, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are free, you are perfect, you are spotless. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, to become sin, to become a curse. So he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law 
might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And Paul's saying, hey, don't choose the way of the flesh and the works of the law. Don't live by those. Don't live under that regime. It's just going to be cycles of self-striving and rebellion and provoking sin and condemnation and then living under that guilt and condemnation and curse and then feeling alienated from God as a result of it. And, And he's saying that's what Jesus died for. He died to release you from that cycle and to bring you into something new. He brought you out from the cycle of law and sin and guilt by becoming sin for us, by becoming a curse so that we might be freed up to receive the Spirit and bear meaningful fruit for God. We're now freed up to receive the Holy Spirit and to know Christ, to be wedded to Him, to walk with Him. So you can do works under the law, Paul says, and you can do them your whole life long. But it doesn't require faith and it doesn't ensure that you will actually know Christ in any capacity. Anyone in the world can attempt to follow a moral code. Anyone in the world can labor under the law of God. But the kingdom of heaven isn't about what you do. It's about who you know. So you can spend your whole life giving to charity and picking up trash and feeding the homeless and helping the orphan and the widow and adopting seven kids and just doing good deeds your entire life and still get to the end of your life and stand before God and hear the words of Jesus saying, I did not know you. And in that situation, Tragically, we would have to respond, I didn't know you either. Instead, Jesus invites us into a new reality in which we do know him. And it's by knowing him and by placing our faith in him that the doors of the kingdom of heaven are opened wide, that his righteousness flows to us. And Paul says, if you know Christ, If you walk in the Spirit, if you stick close to Him, you will bear fruit for God that was impossible under the curse of the law. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you this morning, Lord that you were the one who stood in our place for us, that you are our perfect Passover lamb. And and you saw the pole, you saw uh, the curse, and you said, I'll go to that place. I I will become sin. I will become uh, the curse of the law. I will take it so intimately into myself that it's removed 
from those who place their faith in me. And the result is now true, Jesus, that as we live by faith, as we walk by faith, as we live by the Spirit and walk by the Spirit, we do so completely freed from the curse of the law, completely freed from its frustration and its labor and its condemnation and its ability to provoke sin in us. We're freed from all of it, Lord. And now our our new desire, our new life is about knowing you and sticking close to you. And we know and trust Jesus that as we do that, you're the one who imparts life. You're the one who stirs uh, good things and imparts good things to us. And so we just received from you this morning, Jesus. Uh, we, We release any sense of condemnation or laboring under the law or the curse of the law, and we receive instead the blessing that you give. We're told in scripture uh, that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in you. You're the one who's come to impart life and life abundant. And we receive that from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.